we're in the middle of a series called The Quiet Revolution. I've put that graphic up every week. I love it. Uh, it's Heather's graphic. Uh, I love it because it shows the newspapers in the background. Uh, partly it shows German newspapers, and uh, Germany is a country that I'm very, very fond of. And, uh, but actually, because what we've got is news, that if somebody turned up and, and transformed the way that we saw the world, we would publish it from uh, the rooftops. And so it's good to, to think about that. Well, so I've read the Bible all the way through, somewhere about ten times. Um, and different bits of it, many more times than that. Uh, that's not a brag, it's my job, I'm paid to do it. Uh, but even after all this time, even after 20 years or so of reading the Bible cover to cover, uh, roughly once every couple of years, and studying it and teaching it, there are some bits that seem hard to understand and to process. Uh, I'm saying this partly because if you've been in church for a long time, that can feel like quite an impious thing to say. You think, well, I should pretend that I really understand the Bible, that I really get all of it, that it's all terribly clear to me. And actually that's not true. There are bits that are difficult to grapple with, even for someone uh, who is you know, a professional theologian. It's particularly the case, I think, for the Old Testament. I'm going to own that. Now, the bits that come before Jesus in the Bible, if you are a new Christian or you're somebody who's exploring faith and you don't know your way around the Bible very well, roughly two-thirds of it, up to about there, is the Old Testament. This is the stuff that comes before Jesus. And about a third of it, from there onwards, is Jesus and the stories of Jesus and then the... Uh, people who wrote his earliest followers writing to say, actually, what does Jesus mean for how we live? So actually, most of the Bible is before Jesus, and it says it's, it's quite hard to understand. We find Jesus easy, I think, to some extent. Partly because we've grown up in a Christian country, but also because he teaches ordinary people. He, he's approaching ordinary people with no formal education, usually. And he explains things to them in a way that we can understand. He makes God intelligible. Actually, that's part of the point of Jesus. Part of the reason he came is to show us who God is. Uh, the, the Greek word is icon. Now, those of you who've been around religion for a while or around uh, churches for a while will know that icons are pictures of people. They're designed they're to show you the person. And in, uh, in the New Testament, it describes Jesus as an icon of God. He shows us who God is. Shows us what God is like. So Jesus, I think we get. Paul and the others, they're sometimes a bit harsh. Sometimes they seem a little bit difficult to understand how we live the way they want. But they're quite easy to interpret. But what do we do with the rest of the Bible? What do we do with all the bits that come before? See, Paul says... That the whole Bible is God's word, that it's breathed out by him, that God made it. And yet it can seem obscure, full of rules and descriptions of how people should live and worship that seem totally unachievable or distant from us. Now, we're going to do some actual work this morning. Anybody know who this is? Anybody? It's good that you don't. Okay, This is one of the earliest Christian heretics. Uh, He's called Marcion. Uh, You'll find it. This is... uh, that's where I earn my money. 
This is Marcion. Now, Marcion stands for a group of people who said, actually, we should just bin everything that comes before Jesus. If it's Jesus, it's okay, and if it's not Jesus, it's not okay. He actually came up with his own Bible. He was a very early uh, Christian teacher. He said, it seems to me that the God of the Old Testament is so different from Jesus that we should just ignore those bits of the Bible and stick with the new. That God isn't really God at all. Um, now this idea, uh, it was pretty quickly refuted, as we'll see. Jesus himself uh, stamped on the idea in advance. But uh, it's gained uh, a good deal of traction. It comes up every few years. It's actually coming up at the moment again now. Right? Marcion's ideas carried on for a couple of thousand years after him. Every time someone wants to abolish something the church believes, pretty much they resurrect this idea. Uh, it happened when they wanted to change the church's position on slavery. So the church in the early church uh, opposed slavery. They worked to ameliorate it when they had no power. So they said, there are slaves in the empire, we have no power to abolish it, but we will preach against it, and if you own a slave or a slave comes into the church, they're not to be treated like a slave, they're to be treated like an equal. Uh, so we can't change it, we can't get rid of it, it's a reality, but we will work to make it effectively void. And then, later on, uh, Christians came into positions of power, and some of them said, well, hang on a minute, we quite like owning slaves. And so they worked to change the church's teaching, and that's how you ended up with the slave trade in Christian Europe. It happened again in the middle of the 20th century, when people wanted to change the church's teaching on sexual ethics, when they thought to themselves, we don't really like being married to the people we're married to, it'd be really nice if we could get divorced at will, so they will change the church's teaching on that. This is uh, what's called Marcionism. It's the understanding that Jesus is one thing and the Old Testament is another and we don't really need the Old Testament. We don't really need the rest of the Bible. We can stick with Jesus. Most of the time it actually leads to you abandoning half of what Jesus said as well. But there we are. Then there have been Christians who view the whole Bible as flat. Here we go, this is one of them. Here he is. He's not really a Christian, he's a Pharisee. This is from, uh, I think, the Passion of the Christ. Uh, on this view, everything is as relevant to contemporary Christians as everything else. So we are as bound by the Old Testament, by the law of Moses, as we are by the teaching of Jesus. It's all as important as each other. I, could, I couldn't find a picture that everyone would recognise or that really summed this up. Uh, but in our day, it, I guess if you associate Marcionism, it's usually a progressive way of looking at the world, right? You want to, to change Christianity so that it becomes like culture. Um, this uh, kind of Phariseeism is a conservative heresy. So if you think about a, a picture of a very conservative Christian who's always asserting the Old Testament law and is keen to bind everybody by that law and to hold them to it and to make it a, basically a rules religion and to keep the rules, then uh, that's the kind of uh, person the Pharisees were. Uh, I guess in America, this is quite popular in America at the moment, but at different times it's been popular in the UK as well. Uh, Agatha Christie lampoons these people frequently. They're people who sit around thinking about how righteous they are because they can keep the rules. Usually they're economically and educationally powerful. So they've got the education and the uh, means to keep all the rules and so they feel like they're great and they use them as a form of control to uh, hold others back and to condemn them. Again, this heresy has been around since the very early church, uh, usually associated with people who are interested in controlling how others practice their faith and in preserving the outward niceties of religion. It can be very powerful and oppressive. 
Actually, Jesus spends more time critiquing that group than the other uh, because it seems so attractive to a certain mindset. It seems so religious uh, when actually it's death. Uh, This question about how we treat the Old Testament, I can see people glazing over already. I'm going to explain why it matters now. It matters not just because I got the chance to bring up Marcion in church and, you know, I've been studying him for a while, so why shouldn't you? It matters because it it affects how we see and understand God. It, It matters because we need to know whether what God says about himself can really be trusted or not. It matters because we spend an awful lot of time looking at the Bible and Jesus tells us that this is God's word and says that it can't be abolished and Paul tells us it's God-breathed and we need to know whether that's true or not. We need to know what Jesus taught about it. It matters because we need to know whether or not we are free to just ignore what uh, the church has taught or whether we need to live by it. It matters because we need to know when somebody comes along and is heavy-handed and condemning people and damning them and judging them with a, a set of rules whether we should stand up to him or not. Usually is a him. It matters because we need to know whether Jesus' teaching is a break from the past and a step to the future can just be as easily disregarded, or the climax of a long process of revelation. And we're going to look, about what Jesus, look at what Jesus says about this. Every week I give a summary of the big idea we're going to look at, and here is this week's. Jesus fulfills God's purposes in the world by bringing us forgiveness, showing us how to live, and sending his spirit so that we can live that way. Jesus fulfills God's purposes in the world by bringing us forgiveness, showing us how to live, and empowering us to live that way. He fulfills God's purposes in the world by bringing us forgiveness, showing us how to live, and empowering us to live that way. So we're going to read Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16. If you're looking for it in the Bible, uh, it's about a third of the way through. If you've not been with us, we're in the middle of looking at Jesus' most famous block of teaching. Really a summary of everything Jesus taught. And, oh it's not 13 to 16, sorry, it's 17 to 20. And uh, it's, it's contained in the early chapters of Matthew. So Matthew 5. Verse 17. Jesus says this, he says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, until the heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, means his own teaching, and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. They've been described by commentators some of the hardest verses in the New Testament. So why not preach on them? The first thing Jesus says is that both of the options we considered are wrong. He specifically endorses, here goes my picture of Marcion back again, I'm going to... There we go. All right. He's out. I worked on that for longer than I did on the rest of the slideshow. Okay? 
That is immaculately presented. So good it's coming up again in a minute. I'll give points to anyone who can guess how it comes up in a minute. They, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. It's not the only time he said something like this. He repeated it over and over again. For example, he said, you study the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And then we're told in Luke's gospel at the end, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, Jesus directly contradicts every writer, ancient or modern, who argues that we don't need the Old Testament because we have Jesus. By implication, he also argues that we can't just ignore his teaching either. Jesus says, all of the Bible is all about me. All of the Bible is all about me. And he's not come to overturn it, so Marcion is out. So where are we at? There you go, an angry man. Jesus doesn't simply repeat the law. He isn't here to tell people how to get better at keeping the rules, like some sort of exasperated divine enforcer. He refuses, there you go, okay, there it is again. It bounces and everything, I didn't know it bounced. Jesus refuses to endorse legalistic, self-righteous, religious people who assert their own goodness by complying with a set of rules while continuing to be selfish and conceited on the inside. He's just not interested in it. He actually spends an awful lot of his time condemning them. And encouraging them to seek mercy and grace. I've not come to abolish them, he says, but to fulfil them. Jesus isn't repeating a legal framework for religion. That keeping this set of rules is all that matters and everything else does not. That there are a group of people who are able to do it and are in. And there are a group of others, usually the poor and uneducated, very often women. And they are out. It's not uh, misogyny on my part. That was the genuine prayer of the Pharisees. They would say, I thank you, God, that I am not like a tax collector, a sinner, or a woman. Unbelievable, isn't it? If you live after 2,000 years of Christian grace and Jesus including men and women as equals in the church, and Paul saying there are no male and female in Christ, when we come up against these attitudes, we find them hard. But they resurface every so often. Jesus refuses to endorse this legalistic, rule-keeping understanding of what faith is. He says, I didn't come to abolish them, nor does he say that he came to repeat them. What he says is, I've come to fulfil them. In other words, everything is about me. Jesus, you understand, not me. So what does this mean? It means that Jesus is the climax and put... the purpose of everything God has been doing in the world. It's all about Jesus. When uh, the boys were in, I think, year two, we went to a, a Easter service at uh, St. Peter's Church, or it might have been a Christmas service. They take all the kids in for uh, uh, a service once a term. And it's, it's usually very sweet, and they sing songs, and there are like pictures of eggs and such. And 
Martin, who was then a vicar, a very good friend of mine, was uh, leading uh, this service. And he was asking all sorts of questions. He was asking one question about how you get a message from one person to another. And Sam, who had by this stage been in Sunday school for five years, spotted what Martin was up to. He said, I, I know where this is going. So he stuck up his hand. And uh, Martin said, yes. Uh, how would I get a message from one person to another? And Sam proudly said, he said Jesus. And of course... That's nonsense. <laughs> so Martin was left there uh, trying to work out. He said, no, actually, I was thinking about the telephone. Um, <laughs> you know, that kind of idea. He learned what the expectation is. That if you're coming to church and they're asking you a question, the answer is always going to be Jesus. And uh, <laughs> no, I was thinking of a telephone. Um, <laughs> Jesus is saying, actually, Sam was closer to the truth than he realised. When we are looking at everything God has been doing in humanity, everything he's shown us himself, uh, he's revealed of himself in scriptures, points to Jesus. Everything we need to or can know about God flows from Jesus. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So I want to look at what this means. The first way Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is through his teaching. Jesus fulfills everything God wants to say to humanity through what he teaches. Up until now, God's people had understood that God wanted them to keep a certain set of rules. We, we're all familiar with the set of rules, most famously the uh, Old Testament. I'm not saying I got bored on Thursday, but uh, I spent a little while googling Ten Commandments jokes. And uh, these are my favourites. There's a hand coming out of the cloud to Moses. He says, take two tablets and call me in the morning. So that, that, would, that would qualify as one of my dad jokes of the week on a Friday morning. Uh, then you've got somebody else's a more contemporary one. Uh, he's holding the tablet. He says, use your, use your finger to scroll down for the next five commandments. This is my personal favourite. This is Moses and his dog, and he's got the Ten Commandments. And Moses says to the dog, I think these were meant for you. If you can't read them, the Ten Commandments are sit, speak, shake, heal, stay, wait, down, fetch, come and play. We're all familiar with the, with the law, right? We might not, you might think I'm not familiar with it. You are familiar with it, like the Ten Commandments. Minimum standards of behaviour God expected his people to keep. And then the prophets, if you want to understand what else is going on in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, there's law and then there's prophets. The prophets are basically social commentators. They comment on how people are doing with keeping the law. Most often what they say is, badly, you're doing badly. Uh, the law says treat the poor well and care for them and be different from everyone else. And instead you're behaving like everyone else, you're selfish and greedy and idolatrous and it's going badly. See, part of the problem is, before we even get to the question of Jesus' teaching, we've got a basic set of rules that God gave. We can't even keep to that standard of behaviour. That's part of the problem. The Ten Commandments are actually pretty much the basic level of what you'd want for your children growing up. I'm not talking about being polite and minding your P's and Q's. I mean, not murdering. Not committing adultery, not being unfaithful to your husband or wife, not being jealous of one another and wanting to take each other's stuff. These are like basic levels of human behaviour that God set out. And yet, we managed to fail pretty much spectacularly at all of them. 
Not all of us in every way. I would wager that most of people in this room, at least most, I hope, have not committed murder. If it turns out that I'm wrong, then we need to have some serious pastoral conversations. But you could go through the Ten Commandments and look at them all and ask in detail in my life, have I really kept every single one of these, the basic ten, the most basic ten? The answer is almost certainly no. I would wager that every single one of us has been jealous of somebody else and wanted their stuff at some point. Then you extrapolate to humanity as a whole and say, has humanity as a whole managed to keep any of these commandments? Well, the answer again would be pretty much no. That's one problem. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But there's another problem with how we use the laws. Now, I'm going to put my commercial lawyer's hat on for a second. You see, pretty soon when you have a rule... We find a way of keeping the rule. If you're clever, if you're well-educated, if you've got enough money, you find a way of keeping the letter of the rule. So when I am righteous, I keep the rule. Pay all my taxes. Every single penny that's due, I pay. But we miss the point of the law. Uh, I'm a commercial lawyer, so by training, trust lawyer, you show me a law, I'll show you a loophole. I guarantee it. In fact, I would take that bet. I will bet five pounds that none of you can come up with a rule that I cannot find a way around. We honour the letter but not the spirit. So we end up justifying ourselves because we've kept the technical rule but being rotten in our attitudes, in our hearts. So I'll give you an example of this. uh, Non-controversial example, hopefully. I don't have to think long for examples of this. So uh, I'm going to talk about eBay's tax affairs. (laughs) Okay, 2017... Uh, give my citation, this is the business section of the Independent. 2017, eBay UK reported revenues of £980 million. £980 million. It's a combination of advertising and the fees they charge people. They pay tax of £1.6 million. Meaning that eBay, one of the richest companies in the world, eBay UK's effective tax rate was 2%. Now, my effective tax rate is significantly higher than that. Theirs apparently is not. Now, I don't want you to mishear me, and in case this recording finds its way into the hands of eBay's lawyers, miraculously, I am not suggesting they did anything illegal. Far from it. I am absolutely certain they paid every single penny that was legally due. In fact, I can tell you how they did it. They routed all of the fee money through Switzerland. Right, you show me a law, I'll show you a loophole. Now, it's easier to sit here and judge eBay. But that's what we do when we're given rules to keep. We keep the rule, but we miss the spirit. To put it another way, laws work from the outside in. They control how we behave. Jesus wants us to work from the inside out. Jesus wants us to look beyond the letter of the law. So when he says, Moses gave you these these rules, I mean, there's actually hundreds, but just the ten, we'll stick with the ten. He says, Moses gave you the ten. What God was saying when he gave you those ten was not that it's bad to murder, but everything else is okay. Hatred and bitterness and anger and envy and greed are all okay, as long as you don't actually end up killing anyone. He's saying, I want you to understand what God was really concerned about. 
the law is there to show, we who, show us who we are. When you're reading the Old Testament, if you are somebody who does this, and I commend it to you, um, it's a really good way to, uh, to read the Bible. I would always start with Jesus, start with the Gospels, but sooner or later I would encourage you to make your way to the Old Testament. Always be asking, what does this teach me about people? And what does it teach me about how God sees people? Jesus is saying the law and the prophets are there to show us how God sees us, what the problems are with the human heart that God wants to solve. Jesus fulfills the law by taking it to its logical conclusion. He looks beyond the rules and the heart attitudes they respond to. So, for example, we're going to look at this in more detail next week. Don't murder. Is God really concerned just with murder? See, you show me a law, I'll show you a loophole. I don't murder, but I'm really, really seething with anger, and instead I will bankrupt the person and take my revenge in that way. Or I'll spread gossip about her behind her back. Or I will give her a negative performance review. Or I will key his car. Or I will uh, make sure that I passive-aggressively pass him the salt in such a way that makes him know that he is loathsome. But as long as I don't murder him, I'm fine. Jesus wants to look through the command, don't murder, and say, actually, why is it that that's necessary? Why is it that God has to tell you not to murder each other? It's because we struggle with anger and bitterness and hatred. That's what produces murder. This is why I say that very often keeping the rules is, uh, is something the powerful want to assert. When Heather was a barrister working with young offenders in East London, she would go into court on a Saturday and find someone who had been arraigned for stabbing and sit down with them in their cell. I mean, 23 years old, what a remarkable woman. But anyway, sit down with them in their cell and listen to their story. And she would, and there's all these things in there, there would have been anger and bitterness and hatred and revenge. But what she usually came back to me and said was, Phil, their story and the reasons why they did stuff is all stuff that I recognise... But their social circumstances meant that the way that they lived was that they carried knives and everyone else carried knives and so they ended up stabbing, right? Mine didn't. Jesus is saying, I want you to deal with the heart that underlies the rule. The sickness that produces the symptom. Adultery is another one he picks up in a minute. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks' time. He looks past don't commit adultery... And says, why do people commit adultery? Well, they commit adultery because they objectify one another. They use each other as objects. That's what lust is about. It's about saying, here you are and you are an individual, but I'm not going to treat you as a person with dignity and integrity and created in the image of God. I'm going to treat you as an object to satisfy myself. Selfishness that produces adultery. Jesus fulfills the law in his teaching by saying, what is the law really about? The law is about treating the symptoms, but I want to treat the sickness. I want to look past the rule to the problem of the heart. Not just what God wants us to do as a minimum, but a vision for who God wants us to be. So then there's a second way that he fulfills the law, through his death and resurrection. See, the Old Testament story begins really well, really, really well. Uh, God made the world and he made it good. Now I'm not talking about whether you uh, 
uh, think the world is billions of years old, whether you think the world is thousands of years old. I have my own view on that. I am very good friends with a guy, or very good friends, but I know the guy who is head of the Faraday Institute, who's a leading evolutionary biologist and a committed Christian, and um, I have my own opinions on that matter. But it's fine to disagree. That's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is whether there is someone behind it at all. Right? Whether there, you know, it says, why was there a Big Bang, if you like? And the Christian answer is God, and there is no other satisfactory answer. And the world is created good. I think we all sense that, we intuit it. There is something beautiful and wonderful about it. Particularly when you find somewhere that, uh, that human beings have not gone very much, you tend to find that it's amazing. And unpolluted and beautiful. And you think, oh, it's so good, the world is so good. The world has a creator and it has a purpose and it's meant to be good. Now that's how the Old Testament begins. That's what uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are really about. Um, If you ever read them and think this is really about a a debate between science and faith and you haven't read them properly at all, it's really about a theological question, is there a God and did he make? And the answer is yes. And the world is created to glorify him. Um, This is totally beside the point now, but since I've done the reading. Genesis 1 is a description of the creation of a temple. It follows the pattern of how in the ancient world you would design a temple and then fill it with things. And days one and three of creation, days one and four of creation correspond, and days two and five correspond, and days three and six correspond. And the whole message of Genesis 1 is not really a message about uh, fossils and biology and all the rest of it. It's a message about why the world is here and who it's behind. And the person behind the world is God. The person directing the process of creation is God. And the person for whom it's meant to glorify is God. And it's his temple and it's his world and we're entrusted with it. It's one of the reasons why pollution is such a problem. Because God made a temple and it's as if we're littering in it. The world is good and it's created and it's beautiful. And this part, this picture of the world is there at the beginning and it lasts two and a half chapters. Three pages. And then along come people. God made it. That's the first part of the gospel. The rest of the Old Testament, the next 900 pages, is the story of humanity's failure to live as God intends. It is bloody. It is full of violence and oppression. We can find that difficult and disconcerting, but the world is a bloody and oppressive place. It's there like that because that's who we are. In the stories, people use and manipulate each other. They lie to one another. They oppress one another. And I'm talking about the goodies. I'm not even talking about the baddies now. The goodies lie to each other and oppress one another and uh, uh, manipulate one another. And they do that because so do we. Right? It's a description of who we are. There are precious few heroes in the Old Testament. And the few you find end up failing in major ways. At the heart of this story is the knowledge that God had set guidelines for humanity to live by and that we failed to keep them through pride and self-centeredness. This is how Isaiah the prophet puts it. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. This is the gospel. God made it and we broke it. God made us and we broke us. You know, no wonder when Jesus came, there were some people who simply wanted to abolish the law. Why not, after all? I mean, it's so much easier. I had a difficult morning this morning. I had a difficult morning because someone in my house, who shall remain nameless, uh, was using their cuddly toy as an offensive weapon. 
uh, a whip with which to beat their brothers. And I removed the uh, offending object and said that it could be returned after five minutes of calming down and an apology. And this was, I mean, let me tell you, (laughs) I might as well have said, I'm going to burn your unicorns because the fire that rained down on my head in response to this uh, instruction was apocalyptic. We would like it if the law could just be abolished, right? Why am I not allowed just to beat my brothers with a toy bunny? I mean, after all, they deserve it. No wonder we simply want to abolish the law. Why not, after all? We come to God and we rain down fury on his head, isn't it? Why would you want to judge us? Can't you simply look the other way? Allow us to continue to hurt and be hurt as we please. Why can't you just turn a blind eye to exploitation or greed or indifference? To racism, war and spite and bitterness and pollution and hatred and revenge and abuse. Can't God just ignore it? Can't the bunny beatings just continue? The answer is obviously no. The law must be fulfilled. You see, God is just, and justice demands a consequence. In one of the major innovations in criminal courts while I was practicing was the uh, instigation of victim statements, that as part of the sentencing process, the people affected by a crime would have to have a chance to read their statement out. It's not a new idea, it's from chapter 4 of the Bible. The first murder. God says to Cain, actually, there is a person you've killed... And the story is kind of archetypal story. You've, there's a victim. And I can't just ignore that. I have to do justice. The voice of victims, the oppressed, the marginalised and the exploited demand it. There has to be a consequence for our guilt. The law must be fulfilled, in other words. And so comes the Son of God, Jesus, the perfect one. And he says, I will fulfil it. I will fulfill it. I love you so much, I can't allow you to bear the consequence of what you've done. So I will take it. I practiced in commercial courts as a barrister for six or so years, depending on how you count it. I never once obtained judgment for a client and had the judge step down from his bench and say, and now I will write you a check. And now I will fulfill the law. Many times I got judgment for my client. I was a good lawyer. Many times somebody sat on the other side of the courtroom to me and the judge announced that they owed my client many hundreds of thousands of pounds. Some of them were not able to pay. Never once did the judge come and say, well, I will pay. And yet the judge of all the world steps into the world as Jesus and says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The law has been fulfilled. 
And so we, the guilty, can go free. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Justice would not allow it. He came to fulfill it at the cost of his life. And he did it for you and for me. I always finish with an application section. So here's the application. This is impossible. Living as Jesus wanted is impossible. Jesus comes and says, God's intention for you and for me is to live lives in which there is no bitterness, rage and unforgiveness in our hearts. In which there is no greed and uh, animosity. In which there is forgiveness and joy. In which men and women are faithful to one another and don't use one another. And it's impossible. We each fail. And this brings me to the third way that Jesus fulfills the law and to our application for today. Today is Pentecost. In which we remember the coming of the Holy Spirit, God with us. That can sound like an obscure idea. What it means is that when people become Christians, when they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, thank you that you fulfilled the law on my behalf. Thank you that you died instead of me. They're forgiven. Like the law's fulfilled. But more than that, God says, now I will come and I will live with you so that you can live as I intended. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes into us and as we say, Lord, I want to live differently He says, then I will help you to live differently. So it's no longer do not murder, do not steal. God is changing us so that we are forgiving and making peace. So that instead of being jealous of others, we give away our possessions. We care for them. Jesus fulfills the law through his spirit coming to change us. And to live with us. And I want to ask you, if you are in a place where you can receive that this morning. Some of us might have struggled for years under the impression that God was furious with us. And that we needed to work harder and harder at keeping a set of rules in order to please him. If that's you, then God's word to you this morning is Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. Bless you for trying, but you will never make it. He knows that and he's fulfilled it for you. He died in your place. You're forgiven, if you want to be, for everything you've ever done and ever will do. Not because you're a great person, but because Jesus loves you and he's died for you. You might be someone who really has kept that truth in his heart and knows it, but struggles then with what next and to you Jesus says I want to change you from the inside out I want to remake you I want to give you the Holy Spirit finally and this is the serious one I guess well the others are serious as well but you might be someone who actually treats other people in a way that controls them And applies strict rules to them and sits in judgment upon them. And Jesus' word to you today is stop. Don't be judgmental. Don't be controlling. Don't be harsh. 
no forgiveness, no Jesus, pursue the Holy Spirit and live as God intended you to do. And you will bring life to other people and light to other people. And as you pursue a life in which you say, Lord, I need you to change me, you'll find that you become a life giver for the world around you. And Jesus fulfills the law through you. Jesus fulfills God's purposes in the world by bringing us forgiveness, showing us how to live and sending his spirit to make us able to do it. Let's just keep praying. But I just had a picture in my mind as I was praying for us of a little girl and a little boy in floods of tears. And what I sensed that God was wanting to say is there are some of us who have carried a sense of guilt since we were children. Um... If you sense that God is, that you've carried a sense of guilt since you were a child, actually, that you've always felt like you were not okay and you were not doing good enough and that God was angry with you and that others were angry with you, I sense that Jesus is wanting to say to you, I fulfilled the law on your behalf. You can be freely forgiven. And that Jesus loves you and that he wants to forgive you today. I'm just going to pray. I'm deliberately not looking so that no one will feel that I'm looking at them because I don't have a particular sense for who this is directed. But that picture of the small child, the girl and the boy crying and the guilt that's carried since childhood. And actually Jesus is saying, I've fulfilled everything for you. You don't need to carry that anymore. Father, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Lord, that you would lift that sense of guilt. Lord, we want to come to you and say we're sorry for the wrong things we've done. And we ask, Lord, that you would take us and forgive us and that you would give us a new life. Thank you that when you died and you rose again, you fulfilled the law for us. Take the burden of it, Lord Jesus.